Mox? Ha! When someone came up with that name for dry run exams, they were having a proper laugh. Although, I guess for many parents, this time is where our children are making a mockery of revising, or perhaps it's more like they're mocking us for our frequent, if not futile, attempts to try to get them to study. Ironic naming aside, these test runs can take up a lot of energy and be a source of great anxiety for students and parents alike. So, what is the point of them? How can we make sure that our young people are getting the most out of these mock exams? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad themes such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, and so you can be sure that we'll be covering the topics that young people up and down the country are facing. So, if you're a parent, carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at the purpose of mock exams and other high-stakes tests, as well as revisiting some retrieval practice. I'm delighted to be talking with Adam Boxer. Adam is a head of science at a North London school. He's also a blogger, author, and speaker about chemistry, cognitive science, and retrieval practice. Adam also created Retrieval Roulette, an Excel spreadsheet that generates random questions. He has evolved this fantastic idea into what is now Carousel Learning, something he's co-founded, and he describes this as a massively pimped up version of Retrieval Roulette. Adam, thank you for joining me. This period after the winter half term is ripe for mock exams. Schools up and down the country have been running them. Certainly, most of our students have been doing them over the course of this week or maybe the week before. Many see them as vitally important this year, especially after the cancellation of summer 2020 GCSEs, where the mock exam results became a feature of how teachers could evidence a predicted grade. But of course, mocks were never intended to actually form part of a formal assessment, and on the current trajectory, there's no suggestion that they will here either. This week, Scarlett has had an unscheduled pause in her mock exam period because a student has tested positive for COVID-19 and it's not really helped her anxiety too much. I think the point of mocks are to experience what it's like in the real exam and to see what areas you need to focus on. I was nervous. (laughs) I keep getting told that they could be the real result. We don't get to do our real exams. Adam, is it fair to say that in normal times, mocks are simply a way of acclimatising students to exam conditions? Or is there more to it than that? Everything that I say about mocks has to be prefaced quite strongly with two prefaces, really. (laughs) Number one, different schools use them for very different purposes. Number two, we are not just dealing with learning when we talk about mocks, we are also dealing with motivation. Now, when it comes to learning, and roughly for 99% of people on this planet, they learn roughly broadly in the same way. So I know that if I do retrieval practice on core knowledge, that will benefit almost every single student that I teach. 
And, I, and to be honest, I'd be surprised if you found a student that didn't benefit. However, when it comes to mocks, we are also dealing with human motivation. And human motivation is a far more complicated beast. And different people are motivated by different things. And people's motivation can often hover on a knife edge, go one way or the other way, very quickly, very suddenly, very sharply. Things that work for one person do not work for another person. Things which appear to work on the surface betray uh, an undercurrent of actual ineffect, as it were. So human motivation is significantly more complicated. And so it could be, for example, you know, on a really simple level, it could be that some students who, if they get a bad mock grade, are then motivated to work a lot harder. Other students, they get a bad mock grade, give up, fall into a pit of despair or what you might call learned helplessness. They just become helpless and they've become so used to being helpless that they can't get out of that funk. And it's what's you know, sometimes called like fixed mindset, I guess, that where they, they believe that you know, where they are now is where they're always destined to be. And there's no possibility of salvation or change. So that is a complicating factor, to be sure. Now, the original question was about acclimatizing students. This is very important. Don't get me wrong. This is one of the central bedrocks of running mocks is so that students know what it's like to be in the exam hall. They know what it's like to do an entire paper. You know, an exam could be an hour and a quarter, an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes. They know what that feels like. And also they're in a good routine with it so that they don't walk into the example for the first time in June or May and think, oh my God, this is terrifying. They're used to it. And as a school, you also need to practice those routines as well. Get the kids in quickly, get them out quickly, all of that stuff. My school, that is definitely a part of it. But we actually run formal exams in the hall every year, year seven, eight, nine, 10 and 11. Whenever we have an assessment point, we have two big assessment points every year. And the students go into the hall and they do it properly as they would do a standardized exam. So we prep for that early on. Another good thing that we do at our school, for example, is our year 11s do something called power hour, which is an hour after school once a week where they just do English writing. They just literally just sit and write for an hour. And part of that is about preparing them to be able to actually physically carry that out. Like I couldn't at the moment, I couldn't write for an hour because my wrist would give up because I'm not used to writing by hand. It's just not something that I do. I remember when I was at university, I did the chemistry degree, but I went out my way to do some modules in the humanities. And there was one exam that I did that was three hour written exam and you had to write essays. And I was knackered by the end of it, you know, and, and so, so you have to prepare the students physically and mentally for that as well. So all of that, is an important characteristic of mocks. And in some schools, that might be the primary characteristic of mocks. There is, of course, you know, you, you can't get away from the fact that it gives you amazingly powerful information about where a student sits in terms of their kind of learning. So, you know, in a couple of weeks, our year 11s are going to do science paper one, biology paper one, chemistry paper one, physics paper one. We will mark them, we blind mark them. So I'll mark students who I don't know to limit bias, will internally moderate, and then we will bench their marks to the grade boundaries from the past. And we will get a very good insight as to where the student sits. It is surprisingly difficult to look at a student and say, I'm fairly confident they are, if they did the exam tomorrow, they would get a grade six or even harder. 
given where they are now, I think when they do the exam in the summer, I think they'll get a grade six. We know from we actually know, by the way, from the from the centre assessed grades fiasco of last summer, we know how bad teacher judgments are. You know, our grades were ten percent out, right? I you know, and by the way, people are still people are calling for more of this. People are saying we need more teacher judgment. We were out by a full ten percent, right? So teachers said that a student would get a five, and they were out by ten percent. There was a great inflation of 10%. Like, there's no defense there. There's no comeback. We're pretty poor at it. We're probably better than anybody else at it. But, you know, we, we've shown on an absolute scale that we got it wrong. Well, that was quite interesting. That was against sort of a normalized test. So you as a teacher will only know your class and you can you can rank comparatively how, how your students would have done. Mm-hmm. But, of course, if you were then to take them against the school next door your rankings might change again if they were internally moderated. So you take that, wind that up to town and then county and then whole country. I suppose it's to be expected that you would have some variation, but you're right. Of course, there's a lot of unconscious bias that comes into that as well. Everybody who knew anything about assessments expected it because you're quite right that it is physically impossible for me to compare students to students that I've never met or don't know. It's not plausible. And, you know, people who were saying from day one that this is going to be a highly problematic process were in the end vindicated. I'm not necessarily saying it was the worst way to do it, but it definitely, and by the way, I think that even within that paradigm, they carried it out badly. But I think it definitely shows that teacher judgments, you know, and, and research, you know, supports this as well, that teacher judgments are riddled with error and bias. Like I said, it's completely understandable because if I've got a student who I think is, you know, six, maybe seven, like this i'm going to give them a seven every time if i'm predicting so there's just that inherent problem within it but what the mock does is it gives us like a line in the sand like very firm very precise where are they right now snapshot in time and that is incredibly useful data you know for me as a teacher or as a head of science very useful for me to go with that and to know what i need to do next and with which students and presumably it shows if there were a straight line in learning, and I accept completely that there isn't, between now, mock being a midpoint, and then we'll have final exam in, in May or June, that actually that would put the student here. But of course there isn't because if we take any year, I guess other than this year, maybe next, mocks will be reported by some students, maybe even most students, to be not particularly important. I don't really need to work hard for it. I'll do all of my revision at Easter. It's not a nice straight line. But it's wiggly and it has bumps and it has spurts of motivation and demotivation and all of those kinds of things, I guess, along the way as well. That make it really challenging, don't they, for you as a, as a teacher to see what would happen next? Yeah, for sure. It's a complex system. And you're right to say that it's not a straight line. It might be on average, by the way, that it comes out as a straight line. But obviously, that tells you nothing on an individual level for individual students. So, for example, we know as a school, we might be able to look for the last five years, yeah. We don't, you know, we don't say this but because actually we don't have that much data, but theoretically a school that did have this much data would be able to say, look, for the last five years, we've done a mock in December and the average grade has been 5.5 and then in the summer it's been 6.5. And then you can assume that, you know, on average your students are going to make one grade of progress. Sure. Of course, though, there will be some students who have made two grades of progress and one student who's made no progress. And then on average, they go to one grade of progress absolutely so you know it might give you information you might even be right you might even be correct and accurate on average but you'll be getting individuals wrong 
for sure. This is the problem that teachers have that, you know, if a student says to me, oh, you know, I know I got four, but like, you know, I didn't do any work. And I said, well, great. Well, what evidence do I have that you're capable of getting a five? None at all. This is especially a problem. So in like science, for example, mm. where we have tiering. So I have to put a student in for higher, t- higher tier or foundation tier. The foundation tier maxes out at fives and the higher tier bottoms out basically at a four. So, you know, students who are on the borderline, you know, let's say a kid gets a, gets, gets a four in the mock. Now, they're a really good candidate to do the foundation paper. But what if they say to me, no, 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 sir, sir, like I didn't do any work. You know, I can definitely do better than that. But what evidence do I have of that? It becomes a very difficult conversation to have. And it's certainly gets the problem where actually the assessment is at the end of the year, because that for a lot of students, and again, I'll come back to maybe even most students, for as long as they have been final exams, will back end the revision effort. So she is fine. I know that I'm fine. I'm, I can coast. I'll just catch up either whether they believe that they can cram or that they think they'll spend a couple of weeks concerted effort or whatever it might be, that actually we're not geared to continuous slow drip feeding of study effort. Yeah, that is quite right. So when I listen to some of your podcasts, that's what a lot of your contributors are sort of heading towards. There's a blogger who was very influential on me called Dawn Cox, and she wrote a blog called Ditching Revision, where she argued that we should just stop using the term, because essentially what has happened is we've built a culture around cramming before terminal exams, whereas in reality, students should be spacing their learning and they should be doing retrieval across time. And that's what we try to do with our students and build their knowledge up that way. And to be honest, that program starts in year seven, and it has to be accompanied by a a strong culture shift. And teachers telling explicitly students what they need to do, giving them concrete tasks. So just saying, you know, I expect you to do 20 minutes revision a week for biology is wasting everybody's time. They're either not going to do it or they're going to do something with their time that is a waste of time. So what we would do instead is we would say, look, got the carousel quiz. You're expected to score 80% every single week. And that's a way of us kind of ensuring that that work is going to be fruitful, productive, and spread out over time. Part of the problem, by the way, here is that whenever they do retrieval practice studies, they always do two post-tests. When they do randomized control trial on spacing, right? So spacing out your learning. So they might say to one group, you're going to do an hour's work. It's going to be 10 minutes every day for six days. They say to the second group, you're going to do an hour's work, and it's going to be the day before the test. The cramming group does better in that test. They then wait a week and give them the test again, and the cramming group does worse than the spacing group. So what that means is that students are almost tricked into thinking that their ineffective study habits are actually effective because they say, well, look, I crammed the exam and I actually did fine. And you're like, well, yes, yes, but you're not going to be able to do that for the GCSEs because you've got too much content and too many exams, and you're just going to crash and burn. Exactly right. Two years worth of content. Well, realistically, it's five years. We don't do a five-year GCSE. Like, you know, some schools do a five-year GCSE, but realistically, there's material that we teach in year seven that they can ask in the GCSE. The learning journey starts a hell of a lot earlier. And with the new reformed GCSE, the amount of content is staggeringly large. This is the, the thing that I don't think students quite understand. It's difficult to comprehend just how much content there is you know for science it's just crazy how much stuff there is in that GCSE and if students think that they're going to be able to just do it you know night before two days before on their Easter break they're very very much mistaken. So the combination of spaced and retrieval then would see that you would 
if I understood this right, and fortunately I'm talking to the right person to correct me <laughs> if I've got it wrong, that what would happen is that you learn something, you then revisit it a short while after, maybe 10 days, and then you will revisit it 30 days or so later, and then 30 days later, and that sort of dipping in and the spacing between those retrieving periods or space learning elements mean that actually you'll have a much better strength of storage and connection to those memories, the long-term memory, to be able to put it back in the test. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So retrieval is just a style of learning, right? So it's retrieval is where you are asked an active question rather than reading something. So the classic examples are using language. So in Rodiger and Karpik's studies, and Rodiger and Karpik are the two like big names in this area. So they used Kenyan, they give people 40 words. You know, one half of the participants have the flashcard with the word in English and the word in Kenyan on the same side. So mashua means boat, and then have a flashcard that says mashua boat. Whereas the other group would have mashua on one side and boat on the other. And the idea would be that you train them to say, right, look at mashua, think, what is that? Uh, I think it's boat. And then you flip it and you've got it right or wrong. That's just a style of learning. Spacing is another technique that boosts memory. It's kind of difficult to quantify. No one's quite done this yet, but essentially people forget stuff and they forget stuff fast. That's an evolutionary tick and that's a useful thing. If you remembered everything that you ever saw, you would not be able to conceptualize or comprehend the world at all. Your brain would just be a total mess and you wouldn't be able to function. You know, there are things called eidetic memories where people do remember everything. There's a bit of a scholarly debate about whether or not they really exist. But either way, you don't know anyone like that. I don't know anyone like that either, regardless of what they tell you. People forget stuff over time. That's normal. That's natural. How quickly they forget it is idiosyncratic. So some people forget stuff more slowly. Other people forget stuff more quickly. And again, it's a property of the thing that is to be learned. So some things are more sticky. Other things are less sticky. If you have a greater amount of prior knowledge in a particular area, your memory lag tends to be shorter. So you pick up the new concept quicker and it fades from your memory more slowly. So nobody really knows how quickly this happens. What we do know is that the best time to do your second set of retrieval practice is when the item is on the edge of being forgotten. So it's almost it's like on the cusp of being forgotten where it's like, ah, yes, that was it. As opposed to, I have no recollection of this whatsoever. And that's kind of the sweet spot. Getting to that sweet spot is impossible because, like I said, it depends on too many variables. We don't really know it. And my advice to people is a couple of days, maybe three days for your first lag, and then another three days afterwards. But to be honest, as far as I'm concerned, if people are in a good habit and the stuff gets spaced out, then that will have a bigger impact than spending ages trying to figure out what your perfect lag is because there's just too many items to remember. So if, if you take GCC chemistry, for example, in my retrieval roulettes, I've got questions and answers that cover the entire course. There's over 600 of them, right? Now, if I start saying to my students, oh, you should you know, do this one and then wait three days and then wait five days, like, you know, it's, it's not plausible, it's not feasible, it's not practical, it's not pragmatic. So I just say, look, I just put them into a randomizer and then if you're doing one of these every few days, then there'll be good course coverage. You know, by the time you're done at the end of two years, you'll have covered everything quite well. That's broadly the approach that I took with the retrieval roulette. With Carousel, we're trying to make it a bit more sophisticated because what we can do is we can program the algorithm to retest students on things that they do and don't know at 
varying lag gaps and also what we can do is we can do like field studies so we can say right well for this particular item we asked it to 100 students and then you know 60 of them got it right 40 of them got it wrong what we'll do is we'll stagger the gap before asking them again the next time and see how that influences how well they do and then use that to try and reverse engineer what might be a good optimum spacing gap for an individual student or for a particular piece of information. But like that, you know, that's, that's very sophisticated stuff. And I, it's not necessary for effective revision at all. That's like the gold dust type stuff. But broadly, you know, the advice would be to spread it out by a few days. As you say, I mean, from the carousel learning service or system and from a really nerdy point of view, actually, you've got an awful lot by way of machine learning that you could bring in there to see actually students like you also do this and do that, but all to help them find what is their optimal learning style. But as you say, given that that's not where we are right now, I really want to pick up on the word you used of habit, that if you can get into the habit of doing these kinds of things, so actually maybe the, the students can, even if they're not really conscious of it, that they can find their own sweet spot. Say, actually, with English, I need to... I need to do it a bit a bit more frequently. The interval needs to be slightly smaller. But with chemistry, because I've got such a great chemistry teacher, that maybe the gap's a bit longer and I can come back to it later. Yeah, that you know, that that might be the case. It's difficult to predict. I'm always a bit reluctant to kind of take the student's word for it. If a student says, you know, I've got a, you, know, you say you've got a great chemistry teacher, well that's fine. You're still gonna forget stuff. Right? You know, I might be the best teacher in the planet, but they still have a normal brain, which means they're still naturally going to forget things. And in fact, the reverse might be true, that they might think that, oh, I got this stuff, I don't need to go over it, and then get a really nasty surprise when an exam comes along. So like I said, you know, motivation and kind of your self-concept, so your vision of yourself as a learner is highly complicated. Me personally, my preference definitely is just for, is, is for helping them build a, just a very simple habit Mondays and Wednesdays, I do chemistry. And then you do it the Monday and the Wednesday. You do it again next week. You do it again the week after. It's the easiest one to get in. You know, however you plan it, the second you add complicating factors, you open up opportunity for error and mistake. So it's much easier to just say, right, this is the work you've got to do. Fix your point where you're going to do it every evening. Don't make it ad hoc. Make it a specific time. Your phone is away. Your tabs on your laptop are closed. Whatever. And you are just doing this for 20 minutes. And then Wednesday comes along and you're just doing this for 20 minutes. And then Sunday comes along, you're just doing it for 30 minutes. And then rinse, repeat without adding any complications, any fancy footwork. Just do that and that will see you right for sure. And that, like I said, with motivation and stuff like this, you've got to go for best bets. That is your best bet from my experience. It's interesting because we've seen, again, it's not across all the students, but certainly in some of them, that having adaptability and flexibility, so it's still knowing that they've got things that need to be done, but the ability to say, but actually my plans are going to change. So if I, if I schedule ahead and think forward about what it is that needs to be done, that that gives them a greater sense of control. And then I guess chips into that that feeling of motivation. And if they feel they're in control, I've got this confidence goes up and, and so they can see their way through the plan as they set it. And then learn to review what it is that they've done, learn from that and then move on. You've got to be responsive for sure. And to track back, that's part of what the mock does. So a lot of my conversations with my students after the mock will be, it's very clear to me that what you were doing is not working. We need to do something differently. So that's a very powerful conversation. You know, I've got kids who, who I'm saying, you know, I'm a bit worried that the way you're working isn't quite right. 
and they'll say, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's working, it's working, it's going to be okay. I spoke to a parent literally last week about this. I called and I said, you know, I'm, I'm worried about his son. I don't think he's going to do as well as he could do in the mock. And she said, I don't know what to say to him. Like every time I say, are you working? You're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing the other. He says, yeah, yeah, I'm doing it. Don't worry, leave me alone. I'm fine, I'm fine. And she knows that he is working and he's doing stuff, but she can't quality assure it because obviously how could she? And then I said, well, look, let's wait for the mock. And if he does fine in the mock, then great. And if he doesn't do fine, we sit him down, we have a hard conversation. We say, everything that you were doing clearly didn't work and you need to try something else. So there's definitely an element of responsiveness. And also you touch on the sense of control, which is very important. The seminal work here on motivation, the work that most appeals to me is Ryan and Desi's self-determination theory, where they essentially break down a person's motivation to do something into a number of categories. And one of those categories is autonomy, that there is a feeling of motivation that comes with feeling like an autonomous person who has control over not just their destiny, but their habits of work and their way of life. So by the way, this is something that, you know, a lot of businesses are wising up to in the post-lockdown era. So they're saying, well, look, you know, actually we're getting quite a lot of benefit from saying to employees, work from home, work in your own hours. And they see that actually productivity goes up rather than down. And it's a very old fashioned model of surveillance culture in the workplace where you're checking on everyone, making people fill out timesheets and to minute detail. Whereas you can often get better results if you just say to people, look, this is the work that's got to get done. You're free to figure out the way you're going to do it and in what time you're going to do it. And of course, the manager still has to be able to hold the, you know, hold employees or whoever to account and to offer effective challenge. But giving people some a sense of autonomy is really important. And I think you can build that in with students as well, but without taking away from the basic rubric. If I said to students, look, here are 10 different study techniques. I want you guys to choose the one that you think is best. They're all going to choose rereading, highlighting, summarizing, making posters or brainstorms. And almost definitely, they're going to be wasting their life. Whereas if I say to them, look, these are the flashcards. I'm going to show you how you need to revise them. It's up to you to decide when you're going to do them, who you're going to do it with. These are the options. You can either do them by yourself. You do the flashcard. You speak out your answer. Or you could write down your answer as you go. Or you could work with a friend and you have to hold each other to account. We can practice that in class, no problem. You can work with a parent if you have one who's willing to help. You can work with a sibling if you have one who's willing to help. And you introduce the element of choice that way. You can't pursue autonomy as an end in its own when it's clearly not going to work. So, for example, my boss would love to give teachers autonomy over when they choose to work. But that's not plausible because we have a timetable. So that element is kind of taken away. However, we do have autonomy over our department's teaching and learning policy. So we can decide what good science teaching looks like. And no one can come in and say, no, I don't think you're marking right, or I don't think you're explaining this right, because it's up to us to decide that. So with autonomy, it is a virtue, but it's one that has to be carefully tempered by experience and expertise. And also it's earned, isn't it? So you, you've earned the right to be uh, to the level of autonomy that you've got in your department because of your experience, because of the things that you've seen, because you've proven yourself, because of, of what you know. Whereas students don't have that prior knowledge or experience when it comes to rubrics. So what's my best method might default to what's the easiest one for me or the less challenging, whereas actually you know as a teacher and we know as parents almost instinctively that that's not going to be the right way to go forward if actually it's not giving them the results that they need so i'm completely with you that it's not necessarily policing but guiding and learning instructing if you like 
as to what their options are and, and where they can go wrong with those. Yeah, definitely. Students, everyone, it's normal human nature is to gravitate towards the path of least resistance. So students will naturally pick the route that's easiest for them. They'll naturally pick the subject that they find easiest. They'll naturally pick the topics that they find easiest because the stuff that's challenging is difficult. It makes you feel uncomfortable. It makes you feel out and a feeling of lack of self-worth. But all of that has to be made explicit to students. You have to say, look, if you're finding it easy, you're doing it wrong. If you're finding it difficult and frustrating, you're probably finding it right. If it's like crazy difficult and you're just falling into like this just nightmare hell, then it's probably wrong. But it should be what scholars Bjork and Bjork, cognitive scientists, Robert and Elizabeth Bjork, call a desirable difficulty. That it's supposed to be difficult, but to a desirable level. Too easy, you're not going to learn anything. Too hard, you're not going to learn anything. There's a sweet spot of desirable difficulty, which is where the magic really happens. And that's what you need to aim for. But you have to realise that it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. And presumably, again, I mean, come back to the idea of the mock, that this is all part of it. And it's not just the end of year exams or these sort of moments in time just before Christmas when, when schools will have a mock exam. But all of these high stakes tests that might happen throughout the course of the year and years if we go from year seven onwards are all leading up to that point of helping the students to determine along with teachers and parents what their best course is and find out these kinds of ways of working so that when it comes to Easter they're not suddenly hit with this sort of Hobson's choice of is doing anything better than doing nothing and actually reading is something and therefore it's a good form of revision and i'm i'm stealing there the idea that came from kate jones in a previous podcast episode about it's better to do something than nothing but actually all revision techniques are not created equal yeah that's absolutely right like if a kid is gonna either sit and read a textbook or play Fortnite, then i would quite like them to read the textbook but at the same time if it's a choice between a student reading a textbook and doing retrieval practice there is only one winner. Once they've done the revision or not done the revision, in, in whichever styles they've got, and and here we are now with mock results, and they are disappointed or delighted, depending on, on how that goes. Hopefully they're just not apathetic, which I guess is the worst of all kinds of reactions that a, a student could have to any kind of mock result. What's the best way in which a parent can approach those? And I think it's difficult, if it's good results or bad results, isn't it, to maintain motivation and to encourage them to do more? I was going to say that nobody knows their kids better than the parents, but at the same time, sometimes the parents make mistakes as well. You know, that happens. And, and parents who will think that their kid is working really hard and they're just messing around on their phone or whatever. Of course. Or their kid says to them, listening to music really helps me study. And they'll just sit there listening to music and not studying anything. The learning styles is a good one. So learning styles used to be very fashionable, visual, audio, and kinesthetic learners. We know that these things don't exist and that children don't learn differently. Like I said earlier on, 99% of the time they're learning in exactly the same way. And I've had parents say to me, oh, they find chemistry really difficult because they're more of a visual learner. Well, what you're doing there is you're putting a cap on the aspiration of your child because you're giving them a get out. Right, They're not a visual learner, that's made up. And even if they were a visual learner, chemistry is plenty visual. But because they're not, and because it's nonsense, you're allowing your student to kind of get off with it. You know, when parents say to me things like, well, you know, I was, I was really bad at science when I was a student as well. I'm like, what? That, saying that does not help your child at all. I can make your child really good at science, but I'm not going to be able to if they're sitting there thinking, nah, I'm rubbish at science. I'm never going to get good at science. And you know what? It doesn't really matter. 
So there's a give and take there. Look, the, the results come in. The most important thing is to really get to the bottom of how your child feels about them, I would think, because they might display surface feelings or emotions, whereas what's really going on under the surface, you have to figure out what to do next and how you're going to stop this happening again and happening worse next time. Students who are like pretty satisfied and pretty happy, well, they can still work harder normally. You know, there, there are some students who I've taught who I would say, you know what, everything that you're doing now is absolutely fine. But there's not many students like that. Most students could either afford to spend more time or to uh, improve the quality of that time. And that's a conversation that, again, needs to be opened between teachers and parents. And it's really important that those channels are open. So we do our parents' evening pretty much straight after the students get their mock results. And the idea is that we can discuss the mock results and see what needs to happen next with the teacher who you know, has their wealth of expertise and with the parent who kind of knows the student and how they're feeling about it. I'm not going to be able to give you a ready answer that's going to catch all, but it's a complicated beast. And there are, there are three stakeholders. There's the child and there's their parent or guardian and there's the teacher as well. Like I said, when it comes to stuff like motivation, every student is going to be really very, very different. Hmm, absolutely. I think what we've been finding quite tricky with Jake, it was, it was a relatively straightforward conversation because it was absolutely what you said earlier. Well, it's quite evident that your approach to revision hasn't worked. Osmosis, actually, for Jake, <laughs> was his preferred method. Sitting near an open book would just do the trick eventually. Clearly, that's not going to work. You need something else. Let's explore what that might be and how that can work. And with my daughter, on the other hand, she's much more conscientious. So it's really interesting that she's getting good marks, marks that she's happy with. And yet you, so you want to praise her for that, but also not limit her to think that's all she'll get to. That actually with a bit more, I guess, this challenge, a bit more discomfort, she can push herself on to do more, but without wanting to let, put on too much pressure either. I guess is also that balance. It is a difficult balancing act. You know, when parents say to me they don't want to put any more pressure on them, you know, what am I supposed to say? You know, I can't force them to. I can't force them to have higher aspirations. And you know what? Like if a kid says to me, you know, I, you know, I just, I just don't really care about school. It just doesn't bother me all that much. Or I'm happy getting sixes, and I think they can get sevens. I can try to convince them, but I can't force them. Hmm. It's difficult. It's not easy. And and also philosophically, like, is that really my job? to convince a child that their aspirations of themselves are too low. Mm. I mean, what does that say? That this is a wider philosophical question, right? You know, let's say a kid says, you know, I said to a kid, like, like, you know, you're get, you're gonna get fours here. What do you want? What do you want to do? Like, what do you want to do when you finish school? They go, you know what, I, I I'm quite happy just operating a till. I'm quite happy operating a till for the rest of my life. Who am I to say that that's not a worthy or valuable enterprise? People who work at till should have job satisfaction. They should feel like they are contributing and that their job is worthy. Is it for me to say, oh, you could have done better? I don't, you know, what, what kind of aspersion does that cast on the people who day in, day out operate a till and find worth and value and self-concept in their work you know i think lockdown exposed a lot of this as well you know when people were suddenly realizing how important delivery drivers were <laughs> right you know, well you know what i mean we we should have realized that before we should have realized that a, that a person whatever their job is can find worth and value and meaning in it and it's not really for me to say you should aspire to more it's difficult i think that's right as a teacher it's not i mean you're as a teacher you'll know well you 
you could have done better had you applied yourself and tried because you you'll be able to see those things and again on your wealth of experience but i think going back to what you said a moment ago about the relationship it's parenting and parents would see that philosophically or actually as part of their role to actually know what it is that their child will derive satisfaction from later in life and if actually their child is genuinely someone who wants to operate a till, drive a bus. I mean, all of these fantastic and noble professions that we can't all be quantum physicists. Then actually it's the parent, I think, then working with the teachers and the student that would then determine that that is right. So make the best of who they are and find their own path that way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, th I think it's a very complicated thing and it gets really to the heart of what are wider philosophical, political issues and, and the difference, I suppose, between the purpose of education as a society and the purpose of me as a teacher, which are not always necessarily one and the same. To track back to the original point, you know, I would suggest that if there's a student who is putting in X number of hours and they're doing okay and they're quite satisfied with their results, I would personally suggest that the best way to kind of improve their results would be not by adding hours, but by changing what they're doing during those hours. I find that the majority of students, even ones who are trying to do things in effective ways, can always benefit from an expert hand saying, you could do it even better if you did it like this. And you know what? You wouldn't have to spend any extra time. You might find it a bit tougher, but it's not, you know, it's no extra time. You're still getting the same amount of time on social media or gaming or watching TV or whatever it is you want to do in your valuable leisure time that I don't want to take away from you because you are a child as well and you, you deserve your childhood. But there are definitely ways that we can try and tweak the work that you're doing. The Education Endowment Foundation did a really great meta-analysis on monetary rewards. So these are becoming more and more common where parents are paying kids for grades. For every additional grade you get, I'll give you a tenner or whatever. And so the EF tried to figure out if this was actually effective at promoting motivation. And one of the really interesting findings was that for a lot of students, it definitely increased the amount of time they spent working, but there were no increases in outcomes in terms of actual learning, which to me indicates, and you know, it's backed up by my every single day experience, is that you know, students want to do well, they want to succeed, but they are just very bad at actually carrying that out. And I think humans generally are and taking it right back to stuff like retrieval practice and spacing, that becomes the teacher's job to communicate effectively what is actually going to work and what probably won't work. Mm, absolutely. And as you say, I've never met a student that actively wants to fail. Some of them seem like they're on a path to destruction or self-destruction. But actually, I have, yeah. Have, <laughs> <I> have. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're few and far between. But that path to destruction is what you're talking about. They, they want to fail to spite people. There aren't many of them, but they do exist. That bit of, I'm going to teach you a lesson by failing, that'll teach them. Mm. Well, no, it won't, actually, at all. I'm still getting paid next year, mate. Exactly. <laughs> not, not a lot, but I am yeah. still getting paid. <laughs> so finally, I'm just interested. So we've, so we've had results. Parents have now had collaborative and open conversations about the results, how the child is feeling, teachers are working well. I suppose, is there something in the actual papers themselves that students should be looking at? Is this just about approach is it, and method and motivation and, and all of these other factors? Or should children be looking back over their past papers and genning up based on those kinds of where they went wrong in, in specific questions? There are different schools of thought on this. There is the dominant school of thought, and then there is my school of thought. <laughs> the dominant school of thought is that you should write all your corrections and 
teachers do something called QLA. QLA is question level analysis, where you input the marks for every question in the paper, and then you figure out which questions were answered weakest, and then you like reteach those questions. I think this is a very flawed understanding of how summative assessments work. So summative assessment is one that tests the entire course. There are two words here that are really important. The first word is domain, and the second is sampling. Domain are the things that the student or whoever knows. And you want to figure out in your exam, the whole point of your exam is to figure out how much of the domain they have mastered. So that domain might be chemistry. But you might also subdivide that domain and you might have, say, electrolysis and organic chemistry and bonding. Those will be like subdomains. Now, within that domain is a very large amount of information. You will never, ever be able to test all of that information. It's a physical impossibility. So what you do is you sample the domain. And I guess it's the same way that a poll works. So YouGov or whoever, they do a poll. So they'll call up a thousand people and they'll say, what are your views on Brexit or whatever? And they'll take those results and they'll say, right, that tells us that society-wide, 40% of people think Brexit is a terrible idea, 60% think it's a great idea. That's called sampling. And your ability to extrapolate to the entire domain depends on how many people you asked first. So if they only ask five people, that's a rubbish sample. If they ask 10,000 people, that's a better sample. And it depends on the, the nature and the type of questions you ask. So if they said, for example, given that the UK has already lost X amount in its GDP, has already been denied a trade deal with this, that, and the other country, to what extent do you think that Brexit is still a good idea? It's very different to if you just said, is Brexit a good idea? So it depends on the size of your sample and the nature of your questions. Now, we as a country employ very, very smart people to do that for GCSEs. So they take the entire domain, all the things that the students need to know, and they will sample bits of it, and they will sample enough of it, and they will sample it in a way that allows them to draw a valid conclusion about how well the student knows the whole domain. So if you imagine domain one that has knowledge in it, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, and J, they might sample from B and from E and from F, and then from that extrapolate to how well they know a to J. So that's what the exam paper does. But what that means is that it's not actually about the individual question. It's about what the question tells you about the whole domain. So if a student gets a particular question wrong, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're right, that the next move is to go back over that question. It might be that the next move is to go to the entire domain that that question represents. This is then further complicated by what's called a compound question. Um, so, you know, I'm speaking just for science now because I don't know much about other subjects, though the logic broadly holds. You have a question that might be three marks and tests three different pieces of information. Now, you can't tell from that what the right next step is. And that's not what the question is designed to do. The people who wrote the question wrote it specifically to sample the domain. They didn't write it for teachers to be able to figure out what a student knows about a very specific subtopic of a subtopic and then do next. That's not why they wrote it. So if you, you know, let's say I've got 10 questions in the exam and students got, question eight was about electrolysis. 
and the students didn't do very well in it. And question two was on bonding and the students did very well in it. Now, do I know that students know bonding better than electrolysis? I don't. Because what if the people who wrote the exam said, right, electrolysis, question eight, we're going to make this question particularly difficult. Bonding, question two, we're going to make this question particularly easy. So actually, if they had been reversed and the people who wrote the exam did an easy question for electrolysis and a difficult question for bonding, then maybe the marks would have been reversed as well. So do I know that my students know bonding better than electrolysis? Of course, I don't. So it's a very, very complicated beast to say what the right next move is. Me personally, I never bother going over the paper. It's a waste of time for me as a teacher. The kids have them. I don't care. It says yours. If you want to write corrections, go for it. If you want to come find me outside of class and ask me a particular question, I'm more than happy to go over it. What's much more important to me is a general feel from the paper of trying to get a picture for the things that they know well and the things that they don't know well. And going back then to the domain and saying, instead of you know picking on a particular question and going over that, I'm going to go right back and say, right, this is the problem area. But broadly, even if I never did that and just carried on the next lesson teaching content and doing the revision and teaching content and doing the revision and space practice and the retrieval practice and all of that, it's going to be fine. That is a very, very strong bet. The purpose of the exam is to give me a rough indicator of how much of the domain the student knows. Okay, it's told me that. I can move on. Nobody says to YouGov, you know, once they've done the poll, well, why don't you, you know, go over these answers again? Or like go back to those people that you asked and ask them again in two weeks time. Like they don't do that. They just move on to the next poll. And two weeks later, they'll pick another random 10,000 people. You know, like it's not, uh, it's just conceptually, it's not the way that you think about this stuff. That's the way that I think about mocks. And to be honest, if I were a parent, I would not be spending hours pouring over a mock and making my child do the questions again until they got them right. I would just say, look, you know, we didn't do well enough. These are our next steps. Forget about that mock now. That paper is in the past. Chuck it in the bin if you like. I don't really care. We're going to follow Mr. Box's advice. We're going to do the retrieval practice 10 minutes on the Monday, 10 minutes on the Wednesday, 30 minutes on the Sunday, following the specific routine he has recommended. And that will do us absolutely fine. And it would. The mock is, I guess, part of an overall thing, but it just gives you your moment in time based on that one paper. So you can tell, should I sit this one paper? If this one paper came up again, this is the mark I would get. But actually, it's not really an indication that I really need to now focus on how Lady Macbeth feels about stuff or Treaty of Versailles. It just shows me what that paper is. But it must surely allude to, as you said, sort of domain, subdomain areas that actually you'd be well worth spending your time on these kinds of things in conjunction with carousel or other retrieval practice methods for sure it gives you a hint towards it but the idea is then to go back to that rather than going to the question that the mock was right so the mock might ask a particular question that question might never come up again and the whole point is that it's just about sampling from the domain so it's more likely that in the exam they'll sample slightly differently from the domain you know if you do need to go back to that domain you should 100% go back to the domain like if everyone gets zero on a particular question or a particular topic and you know for sure that it is about electrolysis and it's not a sneak question about something else or whatever then you have to reteach that for sure and then you might maybe like at the end of it as a motivation boost to say right now you're going to do the question you did from the mock and you're going to see how much you've improved 
fine. But that's not the actual guts of the learning, as it were. It's not considered controversial within assessment circles. It turns out there are people who study assessment for a living, but what happens in schools is a different story. And part of it is tied up with the need to demonstrate progress over time. And, and we've, we've become obsessed with colorful spreadsheets. Um, I think we can probably thank New Labour for that, but everybody loves a colorful spreadsheet. And I'm just not convinced it's a great use of time, to be honest. I must admit, instinctively, I'm always saying with Jake, I didn't really understand the whole thing of doing the mock and then going back over it because I said to him at the time, that unless that self-same question comes up, then I'm not really sure I get the point. I get the practising the approach, working under exam conditions, but to have an exam question and then go back over it didn't seem as I say, instinctively, to make an awful lot of sense to me. There are some classes who, if there was something really tricky, then I might go over it as a bit of like, you know, as an interesting kind of class exercise. If I can use it to promote thought and learning in class, then yeah, I'll go for it. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend longer than 10, 15 minutes. Or technique, presumably, as well. That if actually there's a style, and maybe this applies more to the essay-based, the humanities, that kind of thing, where actually if there's a seven marker, and really, you need to demonstrate these things. It's much more about technique as well as domain knowledge, presumably. There, In those circumstances, it's worth going back over to see where you went wrong. Yeah, I'm not going to speak for other subjects because I don't know them well. In science, I don't believe there's such a thing called exam technique. I think it's one of those lies that we tell ourselves. So a student goes, you know what, I just, uh, my exam technique, like, uh, I didn't read the question. What do you mean you didn't read the question? How did you not read the question? What were you doing? Of course you read the question. Like, it's just, it's the daftest thing. <laughs> <laughs> what part of a test did you not understand? <laughs> yeah, well, this is the point. It's a lie that we tell ourselves to excuse the fact that our knowledge is insufficient. And so you might have a question that has two parts in it, and students will inevitably answer the first part and then move on to the next question. And you're like, well, you didn't answer the second part. Like, what was the problem here? They're like, oh, I didn't read the question. I'm like, no, you, what, you mean you stopped reading it halfway through? Like, oh, no, I mustn't have done that. Like, oh, I don't know. Like, okay, well, what do you need to do differently? Next time, um, I need to read the question more carefully. Okay, how do you read something more carefully as a practical skill? Uh, read it more slowly. I'm like, you can choose to read things more slowly and you think that will actually help you. It's harder to read things more slowly. You concentrate less if you're reading things more slowly because you're focusing the whole time on how to get the words out slowly more than actually what they mean. So, say, okay, so what, what really is the problem here? And the kid's like, oh, I, just, I just don't know. I'll tell you exactly what the problem is. The question is in two parts. And the second you finish reading the first part, even though you kept reading the second part, subconsciously your brain is already whirring trying to answer the first part. You're not taking anything in from the second part. So the problem isn't that you didn't read the question. Of course you read the question. But once you've done the answer and you've vomited everything out from your head, you need to go back to the question and check that you've answered it. So a lot of the, the common advice that students get is read the question. Teachers will write this all over kids' papers. It's such a waste of time. I hate it when teachers do that. They say, read the question as if the kid didn't read the question. And they'll say things like, check your answer. And what students do when they check their answer, you say, right, you finish the exam, you make sure you've checked your answer. So they'll go through and they'll check for spelling, punctuation, grammar, that kind of thing. And I, they're doing it completely the wrong way around, right? You need to read your answer and then check the question, right? So you do the question and you do the answer, read what you've answered and then check the question to see if you've answered all parts of the question because by that point you've all, you've almost outsourced all your thinking you've done the brain dump so your brain isn't worrying and ignoring information from the question anymore uh, and that will enable you much 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 more simply to be able to actually oh hang on i actually haven't done that 
you know, or I haven't included my units, or there's a whole part of this question that I have not addressed in the slightest and I need to do now. I think that's significantly better advice. And as far as exam technique goes, that is the only thing that I really bother with because I think a lot of it is just guff. I and mean, people spend a lot of time talking about exam technique, but what they mean is I didn't know it well enough. Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. There was certainly plenty of food for thought in there. It's always really interesting to hear another perspective, and that certainly was an eye-opener for me, and the way that mock exams fit within the scheme of the whole school year. Mock exams are a really useful dry run for students. It exposes them to the stresses of formal exams and also helps them to identify what approaches to revision do and don't work for them. And it can tell us, as parents, what triggers their motivation. But, as Adam says, the output of these mocks, on their own, might be less important. Just like the real thing, these mocks are only one moment in time. The results can highlight subdomains that might need more attention, but listening to Adam, there are a number of other factors at play here. In the end, any indication of these gaps in subject or domain knowledge should be discussed with teachers. But it seems to me that really, students should carry on with studying regardless. With examiners sampling course content, as we heard Adam talk about, there's no guarantee that what will appear in the final paper, or what form that question might take, will have come up in their mocks. We've heard from Kate Jones and also Jenny Webb in previous episodes about some great revision techniques and also the importance of retrieval practice. And that's something that Adam emphasised in this episode. I'm really excited about his new carousel learning venture and the retrieval roulette system that he has on the go at the moment. However, whether they're suitable for you or not, what it brings home is the importance of testing and randomising as a method of improving memory and recall. We talked too about the impact of spaced learning. It's clear that cramming isn't an effective study approach. And while it might see you okay for a limited scope test, as Adam says, there's no way you'll be able to cover the content-rich GCSE courses effectively. And yet, it still feels like the go-to method for so many students. Spacing is the approach of returning to what you've learnt over intervals. And Adam talked about how that can vary from person to person, and perhaps even from subject to subject for a particular student. The study buddy approach is based on breaking down subjects into topics or subdomains, and this creates an, an easy-to-manage, bite-sized unit of work. It's one way that you can make sure that all of the course's content is covered. And with spaced learning in mind, once a topic has been revised, it should be put back into a backlog of work, into your to-do list, and then revisited every so often. If your child has made flashcards for a particular topic, like sophisticated words to use in an English language essay, why not get them out and test them over dinner a few days later? That can be a low involvement way of helping them to strengthen those bonds to the long-term memory that will have been created previously. Of course, the sooner they start, the more time that they'll have to experiment and embed. The key to getting them to start early is motivation. Now, these mocks can be a really good catalyst or an activating driver, as we talked about in episode four, Motivating Teens. Key for year 11 students now will be how to sustain that from now until the exam's proper in the summer. One way is through routine and structure. From my experience, it's important that young people feel involved and listened to when making these plans. 
while accepting, as Adam says, that they may not know how best to do this on their own. However, the more control that they feel that they have, the more likely they are to stick to any schedule that's created. The mocks are a really important milestone in the exam year, but they're not the be-all and end-all. Regardless of how well your child does, the mock's most valuable use is to identify opportunities to improve. Looking for lessons learned from this dry run and making adjustments where necessary will help to hone and perfect your young person's approach to the exams. Whether that's in revision technique, managing anxiety, or recognizing the need to reread an answer and question. All of this will ensure that they're better prepared for their final exams in the summer and help them to reach their full potential. Thank you for listening. I hope, like me, you found this episode really, really interesting. If you did, would you mind taking a moment to leave a review and a five-star rating? It helps us reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, you're always encouraged to share the link to this and other episodes with your friends. It's very much appreciated when you do. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.